We're beginning again our series in Acts, and just to, to refresh our memories, because we ended that in late June um, in Acts chapter 18, we want to pick up where we left off, just reminding you that this is Acts of the Apostles, but better named Acts of the Holy Spirit, and we see how God, how Jesus was keeping his word to his disciples that he would build his church, and we see that happening in the first century in the early church when the disciples were out advancing the gospel. And today, um, we want to look at that. I want to take a moment, though, as we begin our studies again in Acts. In Acts chapter 19, how did we get to this point, this riot, this disturbance in the city of Ephesus? I mean, what's going on? What brought it all about? What was God doing? What was Paul doing? <laughs> What were those Christians doing in Ephesus, all these new disciples that stirred up the city so much that they, they caused all this uh, stuff to go on? The, the, the people were this great commotion against the way. Well, God was working for about two hours. They shouted in the street, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, They're this goddess that they worshipped, that they got their money from. We can kind of understand that. We're going to look at that. But you see, God was working in powerful ways in Ephesus. And Luke uh, highlights some of those events. The body of Christ had this mindset. The believers, the disciples, had a mindset to advance the gospel. And they were doing that. And it wasn't only spreading in their city, but it had spread into regions way beyond in all of Asia. It was happening. The gospel of Christ was changing people. So they, they were changing their beliefs. They were changing their lifestyles. They were giving up things and turning to God. And it was causing a stir. And people were noticing. The name of Jesus was being lift, lifted up all over the world. This church in Ephesus, I call, was a big deal church. <laughs> they were enlivened with the gospel. They were vibrant. They were influencing their world for Christ. So Paul was in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul, for over two years. And Luke just highlights a few events for us in chapter 19. So what does that have to do with us? Well, God's word is always useful. It's always trustworthy. It's always worth reading and contemplating. What does God want you and me to know today from Acts chapter 19? What could we learn here from these events in this city that's all stirred up about the way? That's just Luke's way of saying the way was Christianity, followers of Christ. What the gospel of Christ was causing a stir. So what if you're a sixth grader? What if you go to a new school and you're a sixth grader, you're, you're kind of low on the, on the ladder, right? <laughs> How can you advance the gospel where you are among your classmates, among the teachers, among the administration? Is it really possible for a sixth grader to have influence for the gospel in their school? Well, what if you're a high school student? What if you're a university student or a grad student? Or what if you're a parent, an employee, a manager in the workplace? What if you're a church leader? What if you're a pastor? 
can you help advance the gospel, really? Hey, I don't want to exclude anybody. I probably did, but what if you're not working much anymore? What if you're retired? What if you don't get out very much anymore because of health reasons or just, you know, age is catching up with you? Is it really possible for you to help advance the gospel in a, in a powerful way? Well, in Acts chapter 19, we get to see how God works. When we humble ourselves and entrust our, our ways to God's ways, to our plans, to God's sovereign, into God's sovereign hands, something can happen. When we see how the gospel advances, when we persevere, when we advance the gospel in spite of opposition, we can overcome it all because Christ is with us. So today we want to think about a mindset that doesn't retreat, but it always is advancing the gospel in some way, in some form. And if you didn't join the class, I would encourage you to join next week. Fruitfulness on the front lines, because it's considering how we can help advance the gospel right where we are. So let's take a look real quickly today. Following Christ and advancing the gospel. Uh, Scott read verses 21 through 34. Let's take a quick look and uh, do a survey of chapter 19, verses 1 through 20. In Acts chapter 19, um, we pick up that, that Paul is now in Ephesus. But I want to flip back. So in your Bibles or on your phones, if you have your Bible app open, turn back to chapter 18 and, and just see verse 19 of chapter 18. Here's what Paul said. He was there in previous a year or so before this, and he said uh, in verse 19, and they came to Ephesus, and that is Paul, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So Paul had been there in Ephesus years before on his second missionary journey. And they were really curious about the gospel and they wanted him to stay. But Paul said, well, if God wills, I'll come back, but I got to go. Why would Paul leave such a fruitful situation? Why did he not stay there and say, wow, God's really working. He must want me here. But no, he moved on. But one thing Paul did do, we don't really have an answer to the question, why did Paul leave? But we do know he said in his mind, if God wills, I will come back and I'll speak with you again. I kind of wonder if Paul didn't put it on his prayer list that had it in the back of his mind to say, Lord, do you want me to go back here? But he committed his way and his own plans into God's plans. And he let God lead him. That's a great cue for us because there are tons of opportunities to advance the gospel. But what would God have you do and me do and you do and us together? What would he have us do? We need to put it into God's hands. Well, we know from chapter 19 that it was God's will for Paul to come back because on his third missionary journey, after he had gone home to give a report in the, in the church at Antioch in Syria to kind of go back to his home base, maybe to rest, he again began to go through the region of Asia and touch all the churches where he had been preaching before. 
and, and building disciples and building the church, and he came back to Ephesus. So it was God's will to return. It was God's plan for him to go there. And then Luke gives us a description of how the gospel advanced. The first thing we meet, and we're going to fly through this, in verses 1 through 7, there's some disciples of John the Baptist who hadn't heard that the Holy Spirit had come. And Paul met these men, these uh, 12 disciples, it says, and, and he said, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they said, well, we, we didn't even know the Holy Spirit was here or uh, who he is. And Paul explained the gospel, and he, they immediately, when they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he had come and died for sin and was raised again, the one that John the Baptist was pointing them to, but they didn't know Jesus had come or that the Holy Spirit had come. When they heard that message, they believed. Paul laid his hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came on them, and they miraculously were speaking in different languages. They were filled with the Spirit. And we say, wow, what's going on? Well, we need to realize this. This is descriptive, not prescriptive, because if you go through the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit came on people in many different ways. Sometimes, like here, an apostle would lay hands on people after they heard the gospel, and the Holy Spirit would come. Sometimes the Holy Spirit just came, like when Peter was preaching to the Gentile Cornelius. Cornelius heard the gospel, he believed the gospel, he and his whole household, and while Peter was still preaching, the Holy Spirit just came on them. He didn't touch them or lay his hands on. So this is description. The Holy Spirit came in many different ways. But what about today? Well, we would really need to spend some time on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, but in the book of Ephesians, since we're in Ephesus, we'll go to the letter of the Ephesians, and what did Paul tell him about the Holy Spirit coming? Well, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he says, In him you also, speaking to those believers there, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. So when you hear the gospel and you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you believe the Holy Spirit immediately comes and seals you and makes you a child of God. Sometimes... You experience that exuberantly, some people do. Sometimes you don't even know it happens, but it does happen because that's the promise that when you receive Christ, the Spirit of God comes in you and connects you with him. He baptizes you. He indwells you. He begins to live in you and lead you. What else happened there? Well, in chapter 19, we read about how um, after these events... In verse 8 it says, And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Remember, these are the people that wanted him to come back. So he did come back to the synagogue and he was preaching the gospel. And for three months he was reasoning from the scriptures and explaining how Jesus was the Christ. But some began to reject it. It says in verse 9, they became stubborn and continued in their unbelief and speaking evil of the way before the congregation. Paul just left the synagogue. And he took those who were followers who had come to Christ, who believed the gospel, and took them to a hall, Tyrannius's hall. And this continued for two years, so that all the residents, it says, of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews 
and Greeks. Again, here's two years ministry, and Luke just sums it up in a sentence or two and says, the gospel was spreading and advancing in amazing ways. Look at verses 11 and 12. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. I don't know what to do with that. But notice the word that that God had Luke write here, the Greek, it's translated in our English, extraordinary miracles. I want you to know miracles are pretty extraordinary as it is. Sometimes we use the phrase miracles happen every day, but there's different kinds, I say A and B level kinds of miracles. God's always working and and working in amazing ways. And I would say that's a class B miracle, like, like he protected Scott and Mary Jo. I don't know what God's holy angels were doing in that event. <laughs> if they were like keeping things softer than it might, could have been, we don't know. But a scientist would look at that and say, well, your seatbelts and your airbags and whatever else happened in that thing took care of you. But we know God's hand was there. That's a type B kind of miracle where maybe the, you can explain it away things, but God's, we know God's hand was there. But a type A miracle? Well, that's when the Red Sea opens up. Type A miracle is when Jesus says, arise, and a little girl rises up, or Lazarus comes out of the tomb. There's no explanation for that. Well, that's what's happening here. There's really no explanation, just that it's proving that Paul the Apostle was truly a messenger of God, and that his gospel was true. And that he had the authority of the God Almighty to speak that truth, and you could believe it. Remember, someone reached out, a woman did, and touched Jesus' garment, and she was healed. And Peter, his shadow, would go by and heal people, so Paul was in that same category. And I'm not sure. If God wanted to do it again, I guess he could, but the apostles aren't around anymore. But God was doing extraordinary things, and he wanted us to know that, so he had Luke record it. In verses 13 through 17, the name of Jesus is lifted up because some Jewish uh, itinerant uh, speakers thought that they could just invoke the name of Jesus. I don't even think they were true believers in Christ, but they wanted to use the power of his name because in the city of Ephesus, black magic and, 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 and... all those things were practiced regularly, and they thought they could use the name of Jesus. And we, they tried to cast out a demon in a man uh, as an exorcist in the name of Jesus. We don't know him, but, but uh, <laughs> the demon knew him, and he said, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but I don't know who you are. And the, and the demon-possessed man uh, beat them up, and, and they ran, went running out naked. So what an embarrassing moment for them. I don't know what the nakedness, how naked they were, but it would be embarrassing because they had big names in this city, uh, what they've been doing before. But again, it just proves that the power of the gospel and true believers were different from those who would just pretend to believe. And what was the result of that great miracle? In verse 18 we read, And also many of those, these were believers, who were now believers, came confessing and divulging their practices. 
And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and they found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. That's 50,000 in our days, a day's wages. So it's not just $50,000, it's 50,000 of a day's wage. That's a lot of money. So this had such great impact on the new believers there who were growing in Christ that they were willing to give up treasures to follow Christ. So God was doing extraordinary things. They were willing to put away old practices and idols and things they loved to follow God. The apostle James, the brother of Jesus, he says this in chapter 4 of his letter. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and we'll trade and we'll make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So what's the point I'm trying to make or emphasize here? Do you remember what we said about Paul? If the Lord wills, I will come back to Ephesus. And the Lord willed it. And he committed himself to following the Lord's will. And that's what James is telling us to do. Yes, you need to make plans for your family. Business plans, job plans, family plans. It's necessary, it's okay, but whenever you do that, don't forget to say, Lord, would you speak? Would you guide us? We want to commit these ideas, these thoughts we have into your hands, and we want to dream big for you. But Lord, we put our plans into your hands. Be ready to move when God opens the door. Be ready to move like Paul and his ministry partners were. Be ready to be like they said how they ministered. I love 1 Thessalonians 2.8. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. A pastor by the name of Trent Thompson shared these thoughts recently in a little blog I read, and I thought they were appropriate. He says, anyone can generate ideas, but vision comes from the Lord. That means I'm, I'm, I need not just my morning devotions, but extended times of prayer to seek the Lord. I've encouraged all my staff to do this, but I fail to follow my own counsel, even though it never fails to re-energize or refocus me. I let the constant stream of needs and the moving pieces of the plans of the last year prevent me from keeping this rhythm of seeking the Lord in, in, in fervent, focused prayer, and I'm the poorer for it, he says. I notice that when I'm struggling with decision fatigue, you ever get decision fatigue? I just can't think about that anymore. (laughs) 
He says, I've noticed that when I'm struggling with decision fatigue at staff meetings at the church, I become, it becomes a drain more than a joy. Rather than having a strategic agenda for our time, we just go through the motions. Typically, that means meetings focus on giving updates and getting feedback, but never looking ahead. We need to always be looking ahead. Always planning for the future, forward thinking, walking with God and thinking about his will. God-directed direction comes when we spend time with the sovereign Lord. Now, I want you to know I'm preaching to me as much as I'm preaching to you. God-directed direction comes when we spend time with the sovereign Lord who knows all things past, present, and future. So make plans, but include the Lord in your planning and surrender your plans to his will. So do you have a strengthening going on in your mindset to advance the gospel? Whether you're young or old, a student, a professional, a senior saint, we can do powerful things when we commit our plans and ask him for the strength we need to do what he directs us to do. When we dare to ask him and listen to him and trust him. So believers, we are called to have a role in spreading the gospel. If you're a follower of Christ, then you have a call to advance the gospel. So let's go to a quiet place and meet with our Savior and read his word and listen for his voice to speak, what he would have us do. And let's humbly surrender to his leadership and follow when he speaks. We need to do that individually and we need to do that collectively for the glory of God. Spend a lot of time there. We can advance the gospel when we commit our way to God's will, to his ways, seeking his, his knowledge and insight, and then secondly, pers persevering in the advance. In chapter 9, verses 15 through 16, that's a long time ago now, about 20 years ago, Paul had a conversion experience on the road to Damascus. And God called him. And Jesus said, I'm going to call this guy. He's going to be a minister to the Gentiles. And he's going to find out what it means to suffer for my name. Well, Paul is learning that lesson. Now, 20 years later, Paul's still seeking the mind of the Lord. He's still making plans to advance the gospel. While he's in Ephesus, and, and Scott read some of those verses, you might have not caught it, but Paul's planning on going to Rome. So he used this Antioch, the church in Antioch, as a home base to expand the gospel in Asia and in Macedonia, in, on, on the area of what modern-day Greece. Now his plan is to move on to Rome soon after he goes to Jerusalem. He's, he wants to go to Rome and, and meet the Roman Christians, and then he wants to use Rome as a home base, a new home base, to take the gospel out to Spain, to the far reaches of the Roman Empire, where, where we don't even know if the gospel had been there yet. But he wanted to go there. He's making plans. He's always seeking to advance the gospel. He committed his way to the Lord. He didn't know if he was going to get there, and we... 
There's arguments about whether he ever made it to Spain or not, but it doesn't matter. He was always planning to advance the gospel. Small beginnings in chapter 18. If God wills, I'll come back to Ephesus. And a few years later in chapter 19, we read about how it all happened and how it exploded. Isn't it amazing when you follow God, what he will do? if we just listen to his voice and, and obey him and just dare to speak his name and his glory. I just want you to remind you of something, too. Paul really got downhearted in ministry. Read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. He says, sometimes we got in so much trouble, we despaired of life itself. But Paul was convinced that his labor in the Lord was not in vain. He said that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at the end of that chapter. <laughs> Believers, if you're a follower of Christ today, you have a commissioning just like the Apostle Paul. Might not be his commissioning. <laughs> I'm not sure I want his commissioning. <laughs> Different place, different time, same task. Go and make disciples. Same strategy. Follow the Savior, listen for the voice of Jesus Christ, trust and obey him, and do it together with others. That's your call. Persevere because your labor's not in vain. Followers of Jesus we have this God-given inclination to go advance the gospel. And if you and I are not in step with that commissioning, we know it. <laughs> but we do have Jesus' command. And we know we should be a little bit more active in it. And just a reminder this morning, what is the gospel? Well, we could go all over the place, but let me go to Romans chapter 5. Because here's what Paul says. Therefore, in verse 1 of chapter 5, since we have been justified by faith, that's the gospel. You have to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And when you believe that, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to explain what that means. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So we were ungodly. But now we can have peace with God when we believe in Christ. In verse 8 it says, But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since, uh, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, that is, declared clean by his shed blood, much more we will be saved from the wrath of God. So we are clean. We're justified now through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He really died. He was raised to life proving that God approved of his sacrifice. That's the good news. And in Acts we see that good news spreading. It's advancing among the Jews, among the Gentiles. It's incredible. But when it advances... Scott, you alluded to this today in your prayer. There's opposition's going to happen when the gospel's heard and preached. 
Why does it surprise us? Is America so special that we should never be uncomfortable preaching the gospel? That there should never be any pushback from unbelievers? Because we are penetrating areas of their lives in the darkness of the devil himself who has a kingdom in this world. And he doesn't want the gospel, the true gospel, to be heard. So why does it surprise us that our society is pushing back? They were pushing back in Ephesus, and that's what's so relevant here. Centuries ago, and yet here is news for us, there was unrest and riots. Why were they so upset? Well, their livelihood was at stake. Ephesus was this famous city. It had been an amazing city for centuries and centuries. It had two things going for us. had the Temple of Artemis, a goddess, huge temple, one of the seven wonders of the world. So you know what happens if you happen to have the seventh wonder of the world in your backyard. A lot of people come to see it. So there was a lot of tourism. They also, it was a port city. So it was on a tr main trade route between East, Eastern nations and Western nations. So there was all kinds of trade and commerce going on in this town. The only problem was the harbor got filled up with dirt regularly because they overcut their trees, a lesson in being ecologically sound, and they mined, so all this dirt and silt would fill in the, 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 the harbor regularly, and they tried to dredge it out, and they just, it was a losing battle. So that part of their commerce and money-making was going downhill. It was nothing anymore compared to what it had been years before. So there were, they only really had one thing going on in this dying city, tourism. Hey, it was Shark Week not too long ago. I, for fun of it, uh, for fun, watched Jaws. 1975 when that movie came out. I was a young man. And also it made me afraid of the ocean. <laughs> Do you remember the, one, of the, one of the underlying plots there was, you know? There's a dangerous shark in the waters, but it's summertime and we can't close the beaches because we're going to do what? We're going to lose money. It's our livelihood. There are good people here that need, so, you know, that creates some of the tension. Well, that's what's going on here. Those Christians are turning people away. Nobody's buying the statues anymore. No one's buying the little artifacts of uh, the, the good luck charms of the temple anymore. And, you know, they take it home and they pray to the goddess and offer something so that their families are fruitful, their business is prosperous. You know, it's a good luck charm, and we're losing all this money. Darkness and light are crashing together. So we understand why Demetrius and, his, and his, all his uh, fellow artisans are, are upset. They're losing their livelihood. And Satan never goes down without a fight. When the gospel is preached and believed, he's going to fight against it tooth and nail. He's lost the war, but he battles on until the bitter end, until Jesus comes back. How do you live in Ephesus or in any town for Christ when the gospel is clashing with atheism, 
with false religion, with superstitions, with human-centered ideas and plans instead of God-centered ones. How do you live in that kind of a city, in that kind of a town, in that kind of a culture? Read Ephesians, the letter to the people who were living in Ephesus, who were living through it. Kind of a neat connection, isn't it? The important things we need to know, chapters 1, 2, and 3 of the letter to the Ephesian Christians. Here's what you need to know is true about who you are in Christ and what Jesus has done for you by dying on the cross and who you are in Christ and what you possess. And he's made this church, this new body of people to go out and to declare his praise to his glory, all that he has done for the world. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, and then chapters 4, 5, and 6. Here's the truth. Here's how to live now. Chapters 4, 5, and 6. Here's how you live. Here's how you love. Here's how you respond to people who need to hear the gospel and don't believe it. One quick highlight in the book of Ephesians. Look at chapter 6, verses 10 through 19. Finally, chapter 6 of Ephesians, verses 19, excuse me, verses 10 through 19. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's how you live in Ephesus with a Demetrius and people who are upset at you. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This battle's way beyond us. So what do you do? Verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So put on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and put on shoes of the gospel, readiness with the gospel of peace, the truth, that brings light to the darkness. In verse 16 it says, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one because he's shooting darts at us to make us doubt, to make us be afraid. And take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. And I love verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication and keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And then I love verse 19 because Paul says, and you know what, pray for me because I'm a chicken. And I need boldness when people are coming at me, against me, to preach the gospel. To say it as boldly as I should. To live it out and not be ashamed. To, to not be obstinate or rude, but just to be loving and kind like a nursing mother cares for people, to dare to love and to live for Christ and not to be ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. That's how you live in Ephesus. Do you know the story of Queen Esther? 
Are you familiar with that story? She was in a really difficult spot, right? Her people, the Jews, were about to be exterminated, wiped out, genocide. She was in the palace. She was the queen. If she did nothing, many of her people were about to perish. If she said anything to the king without him inviting her into her presence, she was going to die too. So what was she going to do? And her cousin Mordecai said this. This is from the New Living Translation. Don't think for a moment that you will escape there in the palace when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. What's more, who can say but that you have been elevated to the palace for just such a time as this? So what did Esther do? She asked people to fast. And when Jewish people fast, they also pray for God to deliver them, to show them favor. And God was pleased to deliver the Jews through Esther's actions, through the prayers, answering the prayers of his people. Could it be that you and I are here for such a time as this? as difficult as it may feel or seem to be lights in darkness, to spread the good news of the gospel. That happens when we humbly surrender our plans, our ideas, our good ideas to his ways, to his plans for us, for his people. When we obey Jesus' command to believe and trust and continue to advance the gospel and persevere because we know our calling that we're to go and make disciples. So we team up together. Some teach, some preach, some, some uh, love more and have more faith and some pray more diligently, but we do it together to advance the gospel. And when we face opposition... We remember who we're fighting against and we humble ourselves and ask the Lord to help us. That's our calling. Today, we have a chance to just be friendly and ask God to take it and use that act of love for greater things that we can't see right now down the road. We just don't know do we? What he will do. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears so that we see what you would have us to do. So we would hear your voice and obey it. Lord God, I ask you to give me boldness, to give us boldness, to be kind, to dare to start a conversation, just to put it into your hands and see where it goes, to see how we might be able to encourage someone to think about you or to consider the gospel. We just don't know, so we ask you to help us to believe that you will use us as we surrender to your plan and your wills. Lord, we pray for today, this afternoon, that you will do a great work. Spirit of God, you're always moving in great ways. You, the wind, like the winds you're blowing and are working, so we commit our day to you. Lord Jesus, you're the true God and Savior. Be lifted up and honored through your people today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.